We continue our series of sermons in Genesis, turning today to Genesis chapter 7. We're going to take the whole chapter as the text for the sermon. The whole chapter hangs together as one narrative, and that will be our text. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also by the, of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep alive to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did, according unto all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in, and his sons and his wife, and his son's wives with him, into the ark, because of the waters of the flood, of clean beasts, and of beasts that are not clean, and of fowls, and of everything that creepeth upon the earth, there went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth, In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventeenth day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind... And all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, and every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah, into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased, and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. And the waters prevailed, and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land, died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle, and the creeping things, and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth 
and hundred and fifty days. We read the word of God that far. In the first verse of our chapter, the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Those words of God to Noah in the 600th year of his life, seven days before the great flood, as Noah stood there, at the end of the world as he knew it, must have been words of tremendous comfort and joy and hope in the soul of that aging man. 120 years prior to the event of our text, God saw the wickedness on the earth that it was great. God saw the violence. He saw the evil that infected even the imaginations of the heart of man. And God announced that he would destroy all flesh with a flood of waters, something that had never before been seen. But we saw that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. When God looked upon Noah, he saw his beloved child, whom he considered to be righteous by faith, in the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Noah walked with God. And God revealed to Noah his plan, so that, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear and prepared an ark to the saving of his house. For 120 years, Noah and his sons and perhaps others with them, labored in the building of that massive ark. No doubt many people were watching him as he built the ark, perhaps poking fun of him and asking questions. And Noah took the opportunity to preach to them as he was building. The scriptures say that Noah was also a preacher of righteousness. Noah preached about the righteous God and the unrighteousness of men. And that God in his righteousness was going to punish the wickedness of men with a flood. But as Noah preached decade after decade after decade for 120 years, the people ignored him. They would not repent. They would not believe what he was saying. But in the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 24, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, partying, and enjoying themselves as if the world will never end. The years passed. Noah built the ark, and he finished the ark. Noah must have been wondering as he pounded the last nail or put the last bit of pitch and sealed together the last boards if the Lord would really keep his word, if the Lord would really do what he said he would do. But Noah believed. And he was not disappointed because, as we read in verse 1 of our chapter, the Lord spoke to Noah again. And the Lord said to Noah, Come thou and all thy house 
into the ark, for I have seen thee righteous before me in this generation. We can hardly imagine the thrill of joy and hope and comfort that erupted in Noah's heart when he heard those words. Come into the ark, Noah, with your wife, with your children, with their wives, and with all the animals. I will save you from the judgment to come. The Apostle Paul in Romans 13 verse 11 shows us that we ought to learn from this. He writes, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Now is the time, beloved, to awake out of sleep. Now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. God says to us today, Come, people of God, come into the ark, and behold the salvation of the Lord, the salvation in the days of Noah, which foreshadowed the salvation of the church today and in the last days when our Lord Jesus comes. So let's consider the great flood. First of all, a worldwide wonderwork of God. Secondly, a catastrophic judgment of the world. And finally, an amazing salvation of the church. The great flood, which is recorded in our text, is one of the greatest miracles in all of the scripture. One of the greatest wonder works of God that is revealed to us from the beginning of the world up until this very present time. We can hardly think of another miracle besides the incarnation, life, suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord than this one. Notice that the whole of this great flood reveals that it was a wonder work of God. It was a miracle from beginning to end. In the first place, notice that God powerfully, graciously separated Noah and his family from that wicked world that was doomed to destruction. He graciously separated them from that wicked world by giving to them the gift of a living faith, which they could not achieve on their own. By giving them that living faith in God as their Savior, God was separating them from the wicked world that was doomed to be destroyed. So that when God called to Noah, as in our text, when God said to Noah, Come, come, come thou into the ark. Noah did not respond to that call with unbelief, but he responded by faith, and he went into the ark. Verse 7 and verse 13, Noah went in, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark. By nature, Noah would have never gone into that ark. By nature, he would have gone into the world, and he would have chosen the pleasures and treasures of the world, and he would have perished with the world. God graciously separated him, called him to come, gave him faith so that he went into the ark with his family. God also calls us. He calls out to us today. He says to us, Come thou with thy wife and with thy children. Come thou into the ark. Come And behold and receive the salvation of the Lord. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved 
and thy house. And when we respond to that call, not with unbelief, but with faith, and we come to the Lord, that is not our work, but the gracious work of God Almighty in our hearts, moving us and drawing us into the ark that we might receive salvation. In the second place, this history reveals that it is all the wondrous work of God Almighty in the fact that God moved all those animals into the ark. The text teaches us that God himself called and sovereignly moved those animals into the ark, onto Noah. The text does not say that Noah had to go out into the forests and fields and he had to take a net or a noose, a snare, and somehow catch two of each kind of animal and seven of each of the clean animals. A task would have been very, very difficult. We don't read of any of that in the text. We read that God himself moved the animals. Noah himself went into the ark first with his family. So you must picture Noah inside the ark without any animals, and suddenly two of every kind of unclean animal walks orderly in a neat manner into the ark. God worked in the animals so that instinctively they walked into the ark of their own accord. Two of every kind of unclean animal. Take note that the text does not say two of every species. Some people mock the scriptural passage by saying there's no way that two of every species of animals could have fit inside that ark. But that's not what the text says. Not two of every species. Two of every kind. And we don't know exactly what a kind was. But we know that there was two of each variety of animal, of cattle, of beasts, of birds, of creeping things. Every kind of land animal, air-breathing, non-aquatic animal, two of every kind, male and a female, God moved so that they instinctively went into the ark. And seven of each kind of the clean animals so that they would have extras for burnt offerings of thankfulness to God after the flood. There, too, we see the wonder work of God moving the animals miraculously into the ark. And then in the third place, we read this beautiful comment in verse 16, that after Noah and his family and all the animals were inside the ark, we read, and the Lord shut them in. And when we first read that, it seems to be saying that the Lord miraculously lifted up the door of the ark and closed it. And perhaps that is part of the meaning. But it seems that Noah, with all of his ingenuity, could have made a system of pulleys or something to close the door of the ark on his own. Rather, the scripture is telling us the Lord shut them in as another sign that the Lord was working by his power and grace The Lord was surrounding that entire ark with his arms of love and grace, surrounding it, protecting it, preserving it. Noah sealed the ark with pitch, but the Lord sealed the ark with his grace so that not a single drop of that floodwaters was going to enter that ark. None of the ungodly would be able to enter that ark. None of the inhabitants of that ark would be able to destroy one another. But lions and lambs 
were lying down in the same ark, God with his arms wrapped around it to protect it and to preserve it from the great calamity that was about to come. All of those circumstances of the text reveal that the flood was a wonder work of God Almighty. But what especially demonstrates that is the flood itself. Because the passage that we read reveals to us that the flood was not some minor local calamity somewhere in the Middle East, as so many people teach today. But the passage makes abundantly clear with all of the details of the text that we read. There's a consistent presentation to us that the flood was a great worldwide catastrophe. This was not a local flood. This was a universal flood. This was a tremendous deluge of water that completely inundated the whole world. This was not either a very tranquil and peaceful event, as some have said, as if the waters very calmly rose higher and higher and higher, hardly causing a stir, and then the waters just gently went back down again after a certain amount of time. The passage that we read demonstrates that this was a world-destroying calamity. This was not even either just a good hard rain like we sometimes see. When there's a good downpour and it soaks the earth and there are puddles all around us, this was nothing like that either. What does the text tell us about this event? Notice, first of all, the passage tells us that seven days after God told Noah to go into the ark, the fountains of the great deep were broken up. The fountains of the great deep. The great deep must refer to the ocean of that time. We must remember that this was only one ocean. There was one landmass, and there was one ocean in the beginning when God created the world. And now we are told that the the great deep, the fountains of the great deep, were broken up. That has to mean then that the very floor of the ocean that surrounded the much larger landmass than we have today of the earth, the fountains of the great deep, the bottoms of the ocean, were broken up. There was a great catastrophe at the bottom of the sea in which the ground split open and water gushed up from the great deep beneath, causing massive tsunamis and tidal waves to flow over the shore of that one body of land. And it could also mean that the land mass itself was broken up. The fountains of the deep under the land split huge, massive canyons in the earth so that massive geysers of which we've never seen spewed water up into the air. This was no doubt the cause of the breaking apart of the land mass into the continents that we know today. And have you ever looked at a map of the world and the continents and tried to imagine them putting them together as a puzzles, uh, pieces of a puzzle? It's because all of those continents at one time were one land mass, but when the fountains of the great deep 
were broken up. It broke apart the land into pieces. It no doubt pushed up new mountain ranges and dug out new canyons. It was a massive, catastrophic event. But then in the second place, we are told that the windows of heaven were opened. And now we have to remember that in the beginning, on the second day, God created the firmament to separate the waters below from the waters above. Because in the beginning, God made a layer of water all around the earth, separated by the firmament, the atmosphere. But at the time of the flood, God opened up the windows of the heaven so that the waters that were once above the firmament came crashing down in a thunderous, enormous volume of water greater than any rainstorm that we have ever seen on the earth since that time. It was a catastrophic rain. For 40 days and 40 nights, the waters above the firmament came crashing down in thunderous, enormous volume down to the earth, no doubt creating new canyons and new mountain ranges and affecting the surface of the earth forever. In fact, it must have changed the very atmosphere itself because that water above and around the earth served as a protective canopy for the earth to create an ideal environment. And now that water came crashing down to the earth. The atmosphere was changed. Climates were changed. The weather was changed forever. So this water that burst up from beneath and this water that came crashing down from above caused the floodwaters to rise higher and higher, we are told. The waters increased and prevailed exceedingly over the whole face of the earth. 15 cubits above the highest mountain. That is about 22 and a half feet above the highest mountain on the earth. And the text wants to make sure we understand very clearly. And it tells us that all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. Verse 19. That was no local flood, that was no minor event. In the Middle East, that was a worldwide catastrophe. That was a destruction of the world that then was. In 2 Peter 3, verses 5 and 6, the apostle comments on the flood with these words, By the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water, perished. Notice how he speaks of the world that then was. And that that world, different from the world that now is, that world was overflowed with water and it perished. A tremendous worldwide catastrophe, a destruction of the world. The text also teaches us what were the results of this massive worldwide flood. First of all, as we've already noted, this event changed and reshaped the very surface of the earth in just a few months. That's contrary to the belief of many unbelieving scientists today. The teaching that you will hear today about geology and the surface of the earth is that 
these things formed over millions and even billions of years. They speak of merely natural processes. And they might throw in a few extraordinary events, such as an asteroid collision with the Earth, or several long ice ages that lasted for millions of years. And the claim is that these were the forces, natural forces of nature, which carved out the canyons and caused the mountains to jut up and separated the continents and all the rest. But as Peter indicates, they are willingly ignorant of what the scriptures teach us. The world that then was being overflowed with water perished. The fountains of the great deep were broken up. The windows of the heaven were opened. The world was changed forever. In the second place, the result, according to the text, is that all flesh died that moved upon the earth. Not the animals in the sea, obviously, not the fish and the sea creatures, but all living creatures on the land, all the cattle, all the beasts, all the creeping things, and even all of the birds could not escape the thunderous downpour of God's wrath in the floodwaters upon the earth. All living things drowned under the water. And we must imagine now, as this massive catastrophe was happening, the earth breaking open, creatures being shoved down below, forever buried under the water and under the land. Here we can see the Bible's teaching about the fossils. The fossils which our scientists tell us formed over millions and millions of years, according to merely natural processes, no. Those fossils were formed in the flood when God destroyed and compressed all living creatures under that thunderous, enormous weight of the waters of the flood. In the third place, the text makes clear, too, the result of the flood was salvation for Noah and his family. God kept Noah, his family, and those animals in the ark safe. Imagine the calamity going on outside of the ark, the water hammering down on the top of the ark, the great swells of the waves formed from the catastrophe beneath the ark, but all the while God held it in his arms, preserved his church from the most violent storm the world has ever seen. The flood was certainly a wonder work of God, one of the greatest in all of history, a world-changing event. But what we must now see, and more importantly still, is that the flood pointed to tremendous spiritual realities. And in the first place, the flood was a catastrophic judgment of God upon a wicked world. A wicked world that had filled up the cup of iniquity. A wicked world that had made itself ripe for judgment, having been warned by Noah through his preaching, called to repentance, but refusing to turn from their sin. God came in judgment upon that wicked world and destroyed it. We must remember that for a century before the flood, Noah was preaching righteousness. 
He was warning the ungodly about the coming judgment and wrath of God at the end of the world. But they ignored him and they carried on their lives as usual as if the world would continue forever. In Matthew 24, our Lord Jesus speaks of the flood. And by the way, the fact that our Lord mentions the flood as a historical event teaches us once again this is no myth. The Lord Jesus said that as in the days of Moses, as in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the flood came and took them all away. Matthew 24, 37 through 39. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse 20, that they were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing. God waited. He waited decade after decade. He preached. He warned them. But they were disobedient. Our baptism form says in the prayer, a prayer to God, Thou who hast, according to thy great mercy, rather, according to thy severe judgment, punished the unbelieving and unrepentant world with the flood, and hast, according to thy great mercy, saved and protected, believing Noah and his family. The baptism form tells us the world at that time was unbelieving. They were unrepentant. They were stubborn and obstinate gleefully going about their sinful and wicked ways. And after all, the worldly man would look around him and he would see, where is there anyone who serves the Lord? The church has been defeated. The church has been destroyed. There were only eight people left who walked with God. The mindset of the worldly man was, we are triumphant. We have taken control of this earth. We don't need God. We don't need to serve God. We can live as we please. We have the power. We have the dominion. And soon we will rub out this Noah and his family. And we will have complete control. In pride, they shook their fists at heaven. But God is not mocked. God came in judgment with the flood. The flood was not a natural event that had nothing to do with God. That's how many people interpret catastrophes today. They simply speak of Mother Nature. They speak of the forces of nature. They think God has nothing to do with these natural calamities. But the scriptures teach us so clearly God sent the flood to destroy a wicked and unrepentant world. We shrink to imagine the terror that must have filled their hearts as they felt the ground shaking beneath their feet and saw the water spewing up from the fountains of the deep and saw the tremendous downpour from the heaven above. They must have ran to the ark and banged upon the doors and the gates of the ark. Let us in! Let us in! They must have ran to the highest hills they could find trying to escape the rising waters, but there was nowhere to turn. The time of salvation had passed. The time of judgment had come. And God swept them all away in the surging waters of the flood. The passage emphasizes all flesh 
died. All flesh died that was upon the face of the earth. Every man and every woman, every animal, every beast, with the breath of life, drowned. And those ungodly men not only drowned, but then they plunged into hell as well. The judgment of a holy and righteous God against wickedness. So we can see the spiritual significance of the text. This great event of the flood sends forth a loud warning to the world today. And that warning is, flee from the wrath to come. As we saw from Romans 13, the apostle says, Now is the time that we awake out of sleep. Now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. This is the day of salvation. This is the time of the preaching of the gospel. This is the time when the world must be warned. Flee from the wrath to come. Flee into the safety of the arms of Jesus Christ. Flee under the shadow of his wings. There is salvation in no other. Flee to Christ the Savior. Because the flood was a type of a much greater calamity. A calamity that is yet to come. The destruction of the entire universe at the end of the world by fire. The flood was only a type. The flood was a destruction by water. And it was only a destruction of the surface of the earth. And it was only a destruction of the land animals and man. But it was a type of a greater reality, a future reality. The complete destruction of the entire universe with fire. The Lord Jesus said, As the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And so he indicates that will happen when the Son of Man comes again on the last day of history. And the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, In the last days, scoffers will come, and they will claim that there never was a great flood that changed the world. But all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. But the apostle warns, The heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of the judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The blood points forward to the final destruction of the world with fire. We see the fulfillment of these scriptures in front of our very eyes today. Scoffers. Peter spoke of scoffers. Men who mock. Men who scoff. Men who say, where is the promise of the coming of the Lord Jesus? I don't see him. These thousands of years have passed. Where is he? Where is the fulfillment of your promise? These scoffers who say, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the world. And these scoffers who now say in these words, in this philosophy of our past century, all things continue as they were from the Big Bang 14 billion years ago. We don't know how the Big Bang happened. But they will say, all things have continued since then according to the fixed laws of nature and natural processes. Everything just continues. There has never been any great catastrophe that has destroyed the world. 
scoffers who deny that the flood ever happened, who say that this is a mere myth, or perhaps it is the remnant of a tradition concerning a local flood that happened in the Middle East, but who deny that the Lord has ever destroyed this world. Scoffers. Don't we see that today? Why do they scoff? Why do they deny the scriptures? Not merely on scientific grounds. They're going to try to say that it's on scientific grounds. We cannot base our science on the Bible. Nobody is saying that we should base our science on the Bible. But they refuse to interpret the world that we observe through the scriptures. They insist on trying to interpret the world without the scriptures. And if you try to do that, then you cannot come to the knowledge of the truth. You cannot come to it because nobody was there all those thousands of years ago. But the scriptures are the word of God, not a science textbook, but they are the word of God concerning things that have happened in this world. And when we interpret what we observe in the world through the scriptures, then we see suddenly it all makes sense. I remember one time flying over the southwest part of the United States from Texas to California and looking out the window of the airplane down below, seeing all the deserts. And I remember being struck by these ripples that were formed on the surface of the earth and thinking to myself, I wonder what would cause that. It looks to me like someone poured a tremendous bucket of water over this desert and left these ripples on the ground. That's what it looked like. But if you don't do your science through Scripture, through the lens, through the perspective of Scripture, you will never come to the knowledge of the truth. They're willingly ignorant, Peter says. Willingly ignorant. There used to be a much more widespread belief in the flood in Western society. You go back only a couple hundred years and you find a widespread belief that there was a great flood that destroyed this world at one time. But in the 19th century and into the 20th century, that belief faded more and more as the up and rising philosophy was science, the world is uniform. Uniformitarianism. All things continue as they were from the beginning of time. And that is now the philosophy that dominates in the whole world of science. Look for a geology textbook that mentions the flood of Genesis. You will not find one that will even mention the flood. Look for any science textbook that mentions the flood as an explanation of the world that we now live in. You won't find it. And that's what intimidates many Christians to say we have to accept what God tells us in science. But God tells us in the Bible, he destroyed this world with a flood. That's the explanation. Do not scoff. Flee from the wrath to come. Flee to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only name under heaven whereby we can be saved. But in the second place, and finally, the great flood 
points to the spiritual reality of salvation. God saved his church in and through the flood. We often think that the Lord saved his church from the flood. And there's some truth to that. But what the scriptures emphasize is that God saved his church through the flood. In 1 Peter 3, the apostle Peter writes that in the ark, few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. By water. What were they saved from? They were saved from the wickedness and corruption and violence of an ungodly world. They were saved from the seed of the serpent that had filled up the cup of iniquity, that appeared triumphant in the midst of the world. The seed of the devil that had risen up and was about to crush and stamp out the church once and for all. God saved his church from Satan. He saved his church from the wicked world. And he saved them through the flood. He saved them by means of water. The water that God sent from the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven was a water that cleansed the earth. The earth was filthy with corruption and ungodliness, and God sent the flood to cleanse it, to wipe it clean of all that wickedness and violence. And God also, through that water, cleansed the ark and all the inhabitants of the ark. He cleansed the ark, but without destroying it, He cleansed the world by destroying the ungodly, but he cleansed the ark through the waters of the flood without destroying it. So yes, he saved his church from that water as well. He saved them from perishing under that water, from being destroyed, drowning, and being plunged into hell through that water. He saved them through the water, the cleansing water of the flood. He saved Noah, he saved his wife, he saved Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and their wives, inside the ark, safe and sound. But not only them, he also saved the animals, a male and a female of every kind of unclean animal, a male and female, seven of every kind of clean animal. He saved them too. The animal kingdom. Because although the rest of the animals also drowned and perished with the ungodly world. God also loves the animals. And God would save those creatures that he made as well. He destroyed many of the animals, most of them. And in that too, we ought to see the dreadfulness of the sin of man. Why did God destroy the animals? What had they done wrong? Nothing. But he destroyed them for the sake of man. The sin of man has an effect upon all creatures. We would do well to think about that more often. The sins of man brought destruction upon the world of animals as well. But God also saved the animals. He saved them in the ark. Two of every kind. And that flood then 
points forward to the greater work of salvation through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The water of the flood, that cleansing water, points forward to the cleansing blood of Jesus. In 1 Peter 3, verse 21, Peter there says that the flood was a figure or a type of baptism. The waters of baptism, the waters that we see in the sacrament of baptism, ought to remind us of the flood. And those waters of baptism, like the waters of the flood, point to the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the cleansing blood. Just as God poured out from the windows of heaven this deluge of water and caused it to spew up from the fountains of the deep, that water that came from God, God's water. We also have the outpouring of God's blood on the cross. The outpouring of the blood of God in human nature in Jesus. That outpouring of blood is how the Lord has saved his church. Not just Noah and his family, but the church of all ages. And not just the church, but also the whole creation. Because God loves the whole creation. All the animals, all the stars of heaven, all the trees of the field and the flowers. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, God has reconciled all things to himself and saved and cleansed the world. When Jesus laid down his life on the cross, he sealed the fate of all ungodly men. He sealed that this world will be cleansed again, but not by water. It will be cleansed by fire, a divine fire. That when the scoffer, the Antichrist, rises up in the last days, and men follow him and worship him and receive the mark of the beast, the Lord Jesus will come to cleanse by destroying with fire this whole creation, so that he might bring us his church in all nations of the world, a multitude that no man can number from every nation, tribe, and tongue into a new creation. The flood points us to a new world. That old world was destroyed, and Noah and his family were brought into a new world. That points to the Christ, the blood of Christ, and the coming of Christ, which is going to destroy this world, but bring us into the new world, the everlasting world that will never end. So the story of the flood gives us great hope as Christians living in this present time. We look around us. Do we not sometimes feel like Noah, a little flock of eight souls or so in the massive sea of humanity? Our calling, as long as we live, is to preach the gospel to the world, to preach Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation, to warn them of the coming wrath, to call them to believe in Christ. And we have this hope that we will be brought into a new world where we will dwell for eternity. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Be of good cheer. God will save us. Do not sleep as others. Do not live like the world. Be sober. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Remember that this world is temporary. The world to come is eternal. 
Do not become infatuated with eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and all of the pleasures and treasures of the world here below. But remember that just as in the days of Noah, all those things were utterly destroyed by water, so also, the end of days, all of our things will be destroyed with fire. We don't need them. We have a treasure in heaven that is eternal. Fix your eyes on that. Believe the testimony of the scriptures and have hope. Amen. Father, we give thee thanks for thy word and thy revelation of mighty deeds. We confess that we too are assaulted with the temptations to unbelief. Guard us and preserve us. Give us a humble and childlike faith in the revelation of the scripture. Strengthen us against the assaults of scoffers in these last days and point our eyes of faith and hope to that great day when thou wilt rescue all thy people from the earth when the Lord Jesus comes again. May that be an encouragement